The FDA was instructed by a federal judge to uh, revoke the license because it had never been shown to be safe or effective. Dr. Meryl Nass, a physician of internal medicine, began her research into pandemics 30 years ago with a focus on anthrax vaccines and biological warfare. From the Rhodesian Civil War to the 2009 swine flu, she says she saw a profit-driven push for mass vaccination. In many cases, they bypassed adequate testing and modified or attempted to bury data, she says. WHO had changed the pandemic definitions a couple of months before the 2009 swine flu pandemic showed up. So you didn't need deaths anymore to trigger these contracts. It could just be a new virus. Today, Dr. Nass is one of many doctors whose medical license is being threatened for deviating from official COVID guidelines during the pandemic. If all you're good for is to give patients the government narrative, there's not going to be any practice of medicine anymore. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Dr. Meryl Nass, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me. So Dr. Nass, you just finished, uh, in fact, we live streamed it on the Epoch Times, um, a hearing where you were you know, defending your right to keep your medical license, which, which has been suspended. But I want to talk a little bit about your background first, which is, you know, you were someone who established that many, many years ago that uh, this anthrax outbreak that we're all familiar with, I forget what year it was now, um, uh, was actually a biological warfare attack. Yes, in Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe, during its civil war. Why don't you just give me a picture of your career up to present, and, and then we can kind of build up from... Sure. Well, um, sort of by chance, I wound up discovering that there was this very peculiar anthrax epidemic, um, which occurred from 1978 to 1980 at the, at the end of the Rhodesian Civil War. And I had decided to look at a bunch of anthrax epidemics that were happening over a 15-year period. And this one was completely different than all the others. So I spent a lot of time studying it. There were 10,000 cases. There were just a few hundred deaths. And um, no one had ever studied an epidemic and shown that it was actually due to biological warfare. And I thought it was important to do that as a, as a preventive, to show potential perpetrators, hey, we can actually use the science and show that you did it. Because the, the advantage of biological warfare is generally that people don't know it was actually perpetrated. They think it, was, it just happened. So uh, anyway, I did that. I published a paper 30 years ago. And, and um, in the process, in the three years of research I did up to that time, I learned a lot about anthrax and anthrax vaccine. And in the middle of it, the Gulf War broke out. And suddenly, anthrax and anthrax vaccine were a big deal. And so I became a spokesperson for Physicians for Social Responsibility on biological warfare and anthrax. And then by 1998, uh, the anthrax vaccine suddenly was being mandated on every soldier, every, every service member in the military, two and a half million people. And I knew that it had been um, identified as a potential cause of Gulf War syndrome. And that that had been talked about in a congressional hearing. It had never been resolved. And then to just give two and a half million people a vaccine that might be causing Gulf War syndrome, you know, you don't do that. So I wrote this very short paper in an afternoon laying out the evidence, which went to an infectious disease mailing list. And then all of a sudden it, you know, it went viral. It was linked to the Lancet Journal. And you know, I was asked to write a review article on the vaccine. And the Lancet linked, it, mentioned it. And um, all of a sudden, loads of people started getting anthrax vaccine and getting sick. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't anticipated they would. I just thought it was possible. And um, anyway, hundreds and then thousands of people contacted me, including a number of military officers and some lawyers. And eventually, we formed a coalition, fought the anthrax vaccine mandate and the license of the vaccine. We had a total of 13 congressional hearings that discussed the vaccine. This is between 1998 and 2002. Um, the, FDA was instructed by a federal judge to uh, revoke the license 
and redo it because it had never been shown to be safe or effective. And uh, that was all very good. And then, and the Pentagon was probably about to end the whole program. And then the anthrax letters were sent in September and October of 2001. And all of a sudden, Tommy Thompson, who was the secretary of HHS, said, we're going to relicense this factory. We're going to get anthrax vaccine for everybody. And um, FDA relicensed the, you know, the vaccine. And there we are. So now soldiers are still getting this vaccine, although it's been cleaned up a bit. Um, and subsequently, you know, I, I was asked to testify uh, regarding bioterrorism and Gulf War syndrome and such to congressional committees. In the meantime, I had learned about other vaccines. In the beginning, I only knew about anthrax vaccine. But having spoken at conventions, you know, at meetings, um, I listened to the other speakers and learned, oh, there might be problems with other vaccines. I started studying the other adult vaccines and then developed some expertise on that and subsequently spoke to many um, state legislatures on the issue of vaccine mandates. And while all that was happening, I watched the CDC go through an unscientific process of attempting to get rid of vaccine exemptions. So CDC began to deny that people could get sick from vaccines, that there was any reason to not get a vaccine. And over the, the last five to 10 years has been tightening up um, its guidelines on what it takes to get a vaccine exemption. And then over the last few years, uh, encouraging the states to remove the licenses of doctors who give out vaccine exemptions. So it's been an interesting process. I did not know this was all happening because COVID was going to be coming. But in hindsight, I realize somebody wanted very solid uh, culture, rules, regulations that would try to herd everybody into the COVID vaccine corral. And that's where we are now. Okay, so that's very interesting what you're saying, because I've heard this said by a number of people that I've spoken to, even on this program, that um, there was this interest in what some people describe as a you know biosecurity state or biosecurity apparatus and there's just people or folks are just waiting for the opportunity to implement it and then covid kind of presented this sort of opportunity yeah well yes so there were laws uh being passed in the united states regarding bioterrorism there was a huge industry developed after the anthrax letters um, worth about, that we know of, about $7 billion a year ever since uh, to develop products for potential bioterrorism. There were new uh, structures instigated so that, uh, so the emergency use authorization was developed as a result of uh, the BioShield Act of 2004 and the PrEP Act of 2005 that would, for the first time, allow unapproved vaccines and medicines to be used on a mass scale in the United States with minimal testing, potentially without any human testing. Um, there were, was also uh, an international plan set up um, under which countries, this was sort of um, brought together through the WHO, countries were making contracts, basically all the same contract, with vaccine manufacturers so that in the event of a dangerous flu pandemic, a bird flu pandemic, or bioterrorism, the, the manufacturers would, ha would agree to produce vaccines for that purpose at the time. Nobody knew what those vaccines would look like. And the countries had agreed they would pay for, for a certain number of vaccines ahead of time. And so these contracts uh, I'm aware of began at least around 2004 and were um, used. So one of the reasons there was a lot of controversy about the WHO declaring a pandemic in 2009 was that it triggered these contracts and obligated countries to buy, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of vaccines that had not yet been developed. And in that case, some of them caused narcolepsy. Just to be clear, which, which pandemic are we talking about here? That was the 2009 swine flu right. pandemic. So that, the, these contracts were triggered then. They were pre-existing before 2000, 
nine, and they still are in play. And, and were these same contracts triggered well, with the COVID pandemic as well? Probably. Okay. We, but we don't know. Right, exactly. WHO had changed the pandemic definitions a couple of months before the 2009 swine flu pandemic showed up. And the definition had been loosened, so, and, and they'd taken away deaths. Mm. So you didn't need deaths anymore to trigger these contracts. It could just be a new virus. And it, it could be cold. As long as it was a new virus that nobody had seen before, if it was declared by the Director General of WHO, all these countries would be obligated to buy vaccines. And so, you know, there was a big investigation after 2009. Therefore, there was no media about what was going on in that regard with COVID. I keep thinking about, uh, you know, something that Thomas Sowell writes about in Basic Economics is always look at incentive structures, right? Before we continue, um, I also want you to tell me just about your training, your background, because, you know, you didn't just kind of randomly suddenly become interested in, you know, anthrax outbreaks and potential, you know, biowarfare attacks and so forth. So, um, so I went to MIT and I got a degree in biology and I, I, this was during the Vietnam War and I was very concerned by the war. I dropped out. I hitchhiked with my boyfriend all across Africa and, the, and India and, and I you know, wanted to know what to do with my life. And when I was in Africa, I thought, well, these people really do need doctors. So I went home, I finished college, um, traveled some more, and I said, okay, time, go to medical school and get this done. And I did, but I always had a goal to help people in underdeveloped countries um, with their medical problems. But unfortunately, Fortunately or unfortunately, I got married in the middle of medical school and had uh, a kid by the time I graduated. And so I couldn't go off to Africa at that point. Just a few years, when I was 38, just a few years after I'd finished my residency, um, I you know, wound up being asked to look at these contracts uh, for anthrax vaccine that were with a professor at UMass and the biological defense program of DOD. As, as a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility. And I knew nothing about anthrax or vaccines, but I was asked to do it and I did it. I found out that the title of the contract had nothing to do with the body of the contract. It was a, it, the title was Studies to Develop a Better Anthrax Vaccine. The actual contract was about a primitive form of genetic engineering of anthrax. I said, why is DOD doing this? Why are they hiding it? The, uh, I happened to know somebody who was uh, very high up in, uh, in the Quaker movement, and, so, and the Quakers were interested in this also, and so they, they hired a fellow um, who had just graduated from Brown University, and he got lots of documents together, and so I started going through them. And, um, you know, in th at that time, you know, 30, plus years ago, you could read everything that had been published on anthrax, and I did. I went to the Harvard Library, and I had crumbling journals from the 1830s describing anthrax cases. And, um, you know, when I was done, I knew a lot about anthrax. And then you basically smelled a rat here in this, in this yeah. particular scenario, and you decided yeah. to, to do the definitive research. Fascinating. <laughs> so now the COVID pandemic is upon us. And uh, so what are you doing? Well, I, I do a lot of things. Um, because I have a, now a pretty strong background in pandemics and um, in bio, biological warfare um, and in FDA regulation of vaccines, I have been commenting about the public health response to COVID from the very beginning. And I pointed out you know, in late March of 2020, that this was likely to be a, a lab release rather than a natural epidemic. And then subsequent to that, I pointed out, well, it could be a lab release and it could be a deliberate spread. We don't know which it is, but, it's, but now that more information has come out, we know it was definitely made in a lab. There's really little question about that. 
Yeah, it would be incredibly unlikely. Yeah, not <laughs> right. impossible, but one in a billion, but incredibly yeah. unlikely. Yes. So um, the pandemic hits January, February, March, twenty twenty, and you're in medical practice. Yes. And so, and so, how do you how did you respond to that? I believed the the public health response, the government response. I invent, you know, I looked to see what can we find out about this agent. How does it spread? You know, what are the concerns? And I wrote long articles telling people, you know, what you do. You know, wash your fruits and vegetables in a bleach solution. You know, take your shoes off before you enter the house. All these um, very, you know, um, what one might call paranoid at this point methods because we didn't know how deadly the virus was at that point. We were seeing the movies from China with people dropping dead on the street. So. Um, in the beginning, I told people, you know, don't go in elevators, walk up the stairwell because you don't want to be in closed spaces, um, breathing someone else's air. However, within a few months, information kept leaking out that really things weren't that bad and the virus, although transmitted airborne, which, by the way, the government didn't admit until about, I don't know, August, summer of 2021, um, that we didn't have to be that careful. And then I started explore, you know, exploring uh, other avenues. I knew of and had even met some of the people who were involved in the cover-up of, of, of COVID having a lab origin. And so when papers were published in February and March uh, from some of what I would now call cover-up uh, scientists and doctors, I, I read them and I immediately recognized them as cover-ups. And I'm referring to something called a correspondence in The Lancet in late February, which was ghostwritten by Peter Daszak, but a, a lot of other people had a hand in it. It was signed by 27 people, I think. And then there were in March, in Nature Medicine, there was another correspondence by five scientists um, which attempted to claim that there was no way COVID could have come from a lab because of certain reasons. The reasons didn't make sense. You know, and then we found out that actually Tony Fauci had, um, had that article written, that he had he and Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust and Francis Collins, head of NIH, had convened a meeting at which they decided to create this article as a cover-up. So uh, anyway, I didn't know Fauci was involved. I didn't know who was involved besides the five authors. But I wrote in March uh, of 2020 that I don't, I don't understand how these people could have written this. This doesn't make any sense. These are supposed to be credible scientists. And I said when I was interviewed for, the, um, for Mickey Willis's Plandemic 2 movie, I said, I don't think they wrote it, or somebody made them write it, or it was ghostwritten. I turned out to be right about that. You've gotten kind of deeply involved in the actual early treatment of the disease as well. Right. So, I mean, I'm a doctor. I had a private practice, and um, my son got sick with COVID in March of 2020. I, I mean... So I always try to use what I know, you know, however it may be useful um, to others. And so I sort of had a finger in a lot of different pots with respect to COVID because I had enough background to be able to do that. So at the same time I was challenging the origin, I was also looking into treatment and I was aware the Chinese had told us in February that the chloroquine drugs were, were their best option. They had about 20 different treatment trials of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine going very early on. I didn't know then, but I soon found out that the reason they were using chloroquine is because these articles had been published from Europe and the United States showing that chloroquine had killed SARS-1 in tissue culture, you know, in vitro. And at, starting in 2004, those articles had been published. See, SARS-1 had been a huge problem for China. It only affected 8,000 people, but it had a 10% mortality rate, and it seemed to originate in China. So they um, and most other countries 
were very concerned about this agent, SARS-1, or SARS, the original SARS. It came out of nowhere in 2002, died out in 2003, but was considered by all nations to be a potential biological warfare agent. It was put on a list by the CDC called the Select Agent List. These, aid, these microorganisms cannot be sold or transferred without permission from CDC. Um, and so it turned out NIAID and Fauci had spent up to $50 million a year researching SARS and other deadly, then another deadly coronavirus popped up around 2012 in the Arabian Peninsula, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, a cousin. It had a 30% mortality. So again, both these, so DOD money that had gone to Fauci was being used to look at responses to these viruses. And in 2004, 2005, and 2014, papers were published by CDC, by Fauci's NIAID, and by two groups of European scientists showing all sorts of already licensed drugs that killed these viruses in vitro, in tissue culture. The 2014 paper by Fauci's group listed over 60 different drugs that killed MERS or SARS, which included hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, didn't include ivermectin. So the federal agencies were aware before COVID ever appeared that the chloroquine drugs were very likely to be effective. This was reinforced by the Chinese. And what did they do? When, when Trump got word of it and said it publicly, they suppressed the use of those drugs immediately thereafter, and they're still being suppressed. Why, why do you think that happened? At the time, I only knew that it happened. I didn't know why it happened. With hindsight, we can see that the purpose was um, to prolong the pandemic, uh, which presumably uh, was done because under the guise of pandemics, under using emergency legislation that only can be brought into play during a designated a medical emergency, um, you can do a lot of things. You can increase surveillance. You know, you can centralize controls that the federal and state governments would not be able to do otherwise. And now we see things are changing. We see central bank digital uh, currencies coming in. Um, we see food sh shortages. There was a um, fertilizer shortage and the Union Pacific Railroad refused to carry a lot of fertilizer in its trains this past uh, spring. So anyway, I, I don't know the full dimensions of this, but um, had the pandemic not be de been designated, had people not been confined to their homes, had we had business as usual, societal changes could not have been implemented nearly as quickly or effectively. I knew that the chloroquine drugs were being used in China. I had used them on my son already. He was my first patient. But the public didn't know there was a drug that might be useful for COVID. They had been told there is nothing to be done. Just stay home and take Tylenol. Once Trump started saying it in public, then people wanted it. And that was when the suppression became necessary, apparently. So here we are today, and you're fighting for your medical license. So give me the story of that. So I've been treating people with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and other medications and supplements and vitamins for COVID, um, you know, reasonably effectively. Very few doctors uh, were will, have been willing to do that because they felt their licenses were threatened or they felt these drugs couldn't possibly be effective because how could it be that the public health establishment you know, would speak so strongly against them? Um, in my case, I'd already used hydroxychloroquine a lot in Lyme disease patients, in some lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients. I'd taken the drug myself, um, and so I knew that it was safe. I, I didn't know that about ivermectin. Um, and I documented 
many forms of suppression. So I started writing an article in May, June of 2020. I completed it about a year later and I documented over 50 different ways the federal government, the state governments, and foreign governments, as well as manufacturers, drug uh, store companies, and others were suppressing the use of the chloroquine drugs. So, so by basically by the middle of 2020, I knew there was a major suppression in play. Others had identified first that in the UK, a clinical trial of the chloroquine of hydroxychloroquine used too high a dose, a dangerous dose that could potentially kill people. And I thought, wow, if that's going on in the UK, might it be going on anywhere else? And I found several other clinical trials where the same thing was happening, including one in over 30 countries that the WHO was running using the same dangerous dose. You're basically telling me that, you know, based on, you know, historical precedent and papers that were published, the trials that were being run were being run at dosages that were potentially toxic? Dosages that had never been clinically used before, dosages that are not appropriate, um, using the chloroquine drugs, which um, can cause dangerous arrhythmias if given at too high a dose. So the side of, these are old drugs. These are drugs that have been on the market more than 60 years. They're very well known. Um, in fact, they were over the counter in France until the very beginning of the pandemic. And they're over the counter in most of the developing world, ivermectin also. And so um, they, both these drugs have a very well-established safety profile. And so it, it, you just have to look in a textbook to find out what the proper dose is. And yet, and there was no reason to believe you needed a higher dose for COVID. So there were some post hoc justifications why we had to give this high dose but they don't hold water. And I've written about this in, in my long article on suppression. And so again, to see that there were five clinical trials using excess doses, th there had to be a reason for that. You know, that's, doctors don't come up with this on their own. Oh, it's COVID, let's give a deadly dose, you know? <laughs> so there is something behind this, although I don't know what it is. So, um, so I'd been treating people, you know, since early in 2020, and um, starting in October of last year, two October, November, two strangers who didn't know me or any of my patients reported to the medical board that they'd seen an interview I did on the internet, uh, and they didn't like it, that I was spreading misinformation, and one said I was spreading misinformation in tweets. And so the board told me to defend myself, and I said, you haven't told me what I've done wrong. Could you specify one thing I said that was incorrect, that was misinformation? They never did. Could you define misinformation for me? They never did. Um, but they decided to open an investigation. And then I spoke at a pharmacy board meeting in November, um, probably before the second complaint. They had issued a guidance document that was not really a policy. It wasn't a rule or regulation. But they had told pharmacists to check that ivermectin prescriptions uh, were being used for legitimate purposes and implied that they should not be used for COVID. And they had a, earlier initiated a similar document about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, um, which interestingly was uh, taken back in January. So most of the pharmacies, over 90%, would not fill the ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine prescriptions for COVID. And well over 90% of the doctors would not write such prescriptions. So I wound up having a large number of patients call me for them. And none of them complained, not one, to the board. Um, then uh, the board found a doctor and a midwife who both complained that patients that we had jointly cared for um, I had given an ivermectin prescription to one and a hydroxychloroquine prescription to the other. So that was two more complaints. Not that I'd harmed the patients, just that I'd used horse pace on them. Or I'd given the hydroxychloroquine, the midwife didn't even know it's approved in pregnancy. Um, so, uh, and then there was a fifth complaint, which was very interesting. This is the complaint I made of myself. I, I had emailed the Board of Medicine last fall, and I said, look, you people, 
have forced me to lie to a pharmacist. I had to provide misinformation to a pharmacist because you've suppressed the use of hydroxychloroquine and the pharmacist would not dispense it, even though it's a legal drug and I'm legally able to prescribe it um, because of your whisper campaign and you need to change that policy. So they said, ah, oh, great, we finally have a real complaint. Dr. Nass complained that she lied to a pharmacist and we're gonna get her on that one. So the director, the executive director of the board told me this was a very serious crime I had committed. And um, so they wrote all this up, you know, misinformation, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, lied to a pharmacist. They had a meeting of the board and they decided that this crime was at least equal to rape or murder and that my license needed to be immediately suspended that same day um, by the board because I was a risk to the people of Maine. And um, that's what happened in January. And my hearing just began in, on Tuesday and uh, will continue in another uh, couple of weeks on October 25th. And um, then the same people who voted unanimously to strip me of my license will again vote whether they think my license should continue to be suspended. And we shall see what happens. So we, we live, actually live streamed your hearing because these are, you know, we, we see these as of you know, interest to society in general, these, these sorts of activities. Um, what do you think the, the reaction, what was your impression of their reaction? I think most of the board members had what we call in medicine masked faces. <laughs> um, they looked angry. Um, they looked unhappy. Um, two of the board members' faces became very mobile towards the end, and they looked very upset. Um, I think that their uh, view of COVID medicine was being challenged. I challenged them. I told them that they had participated in a crime against humanity. I told them that they had destroyed my reputation with no grounds, which was true. Um, and I told them that uh, there's no laws of, against misinformation except for one. It's called the First Amendment. Freedom of speech. <laughs> I think a couple of them were shocked to realize that we actually did have a law guaranteeing my freedom of speech. Um, two, we uh, two weeks before the hearing, the, the board attorneys dropped most of the charges. They just disappeared because they, I think they realized they couldn't possibly defend them. So all the misinformation charges, the charges of writing prescriptions off-label, and they said, we don't want to talk about the vaccine either. Let's drop the vaccine. <laughs> And yet this board still said I was, having dropped all those charges, the board voted unanimously at the start of the hearing that my license should remain suspended. So what have you been doing for those 10 months that, uh, that you haven't been able to practice? Right, so um, I'm doing more of what I was doing before, which is trying to understand the pandemic, trying to understand what's behind it, um, trying to uh, work on finding the best medical uh, treatments, methods of care, and making the public aware of them. And um, now I'm on Children's Health Defense TV every week, and um, I do a lot of writing. And I just, I, you know, trying to figure out what has happened to society, what has happened to the world, how do we understand it, how do we get over it. How do we build a better society? Um, so I feel that, uh, you know, my life has probably never had as much meaning as it has had this past year. You know, one of the most recent articles you've written is about negative vaccine efficacy. I'm going to get you to explain what that is because it's, I think it's still very hard to, to conceive. But also that we have industry people confirming that this is a reality now. And this, this was the subject of a recent paper you wrote. So tell me about that. Let me start that discussion by saying that in the United States, a measles vaccine was licensed in the early 1960s that um, people received. And then if they were exposed to measles and had been vaccinated, they developed a much more severe form of illness. It wasn't measles anymore. It was something worse. 
And so that vaccine was taken off the market. And then later, there was an RS respiratory syncytial virus. It's a disease of young babies, very, very common. Um, there was a, a, an experimental RSV vaccine given to babies, and it killed some babies um, when they got exposed to respiratory syncytial virus. And in animals, there have been vaccine, animal vaccines that we know of that have caused worse illnesses in the animals if they've been vaccinated. Now, there are different mechanisms that can do that. So I don't want to call it just antibody-dependent enhancement or antigenic sin, because we don't know for sure what the mechanisms are with respect to COVID. So what negative efficacy is, is in a vaccinated person becomes either more susceptible to the disease that they were vaccinated against, or um, they get a worse case of the disease when they're vaccinated. We actually saw this recently. This is, a, this is kind of a scandal. Dengue. Dengue is a viral illness, um, and uh, a new dengue vaccine from Sanofi. It was actually licensed in the Philippines, although it hadn't gone through full trials. And it was given to lots of kids. And then when kids got dengue, there were many deaths. And, and this was just in the last four years. Um, that vaccine has now been licensed in the United States for kids. And the restriction on it, because we now have dengue in a little bit of dengue in Hawaii, in Florida, um, in Puerto Rico, um, Virgin Islands, tiny bit in Texas. The restriction on that dengue, dengvaxia is the name of the vaccine, um, is that the child should have already had dengue so that they're less, much less likely to have this life-threatening result. So there, there are bad vaccines out there, and FDA licensed this one in the United States uh, right before the pandemic started, actually. What has happened now with the uh, mRNA vaccines is that when you get vaccinated for a couple of weeks, immediately afterwards, your immune system has, has been suppressed and you're more susceptible to COVID and to other viral infections, including viruses that may already be in your body. And then after two weeks, you get some enhancement of immunity against COVID for weeks to months, and then depending on the age group and depending on the vaccine, a few months later, the immunity slowly wears off. And instead of going to zero, which is what you would logically expect, it goes below zero. It becomes negative, And you become more susceptible to getting COVID in the United States. And CDC data shows this. Data from New York State shows this, and now data from Kaiser Permanente shows the same thing. After several months in children, after about six to seven months in adults, after your last shot, you are more susceptible to getting COVID. There is some limited, very limited data from the UK, uh, and most of the data is not being shared with the public, that suggests you're probably more likely to die if you've been vaccinated, also after a period of months, six, seven months after vaccination, you're at higher risk of death from COVID or from everything. But that, that, those data are limited, so I'm not going to stand by that at this point in time. But it, it's a huge concern because um, this is probably one reason why the FDA, CDC, and the White House want people to get frequent boosters because they don't want them to get to that six to seven month mark where they become more susceptible and may become more susceptible to mortality. But that's not going to work either because the more shots you get, the more other problems develop. And I'm not going to go into all that, but you can only boost for a time. And uh, uh, right now, everybody's kicking the can down the road in the uh, U.S. public health system. So, you know, fascinating. So basically, you're saying there's this signal that should be researched probably extensively. And has been, mm -hmm. but that information is mostly suppressed. 
Fascinating. And, and so where, is it suppressed or is the data not available or? So it, it's, um, it's complicated. The CDC collects data from about a dozen different databases, including Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, the Defense Department, um, a group of, NG, of uh, what are they called, HMOs. So CDC pays the HMOs for their, for their data on 12 million Americans. So they have all these different databases. They're only showing us a small fraction of them. The FDA has a group of different databases it pays for, which includes data for, from over 100 million Americans. They're not showing us that either. What they're showing us is the VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a voluntary database where people can report if they choose to, doctors can report, they're supposed to report, most of them don't. And this database is being denigrated by the FDA and CDC because of the issue of voluntary reporting and not knowing what the reporting rate is. You know, is, is one in 10 cases of you know, death being reported or one in 100? We don't know. But that database is critically important because by law, it has to be shared with the public. Mm -hmm. So we get to see it and we get to see the whole thing. And it turns out there have been more deaths reported related to a COVID vaccine in the last uh, year, you know, two years, not, they started in December of 2020, than all deaths for all other vaccines in 30 plus years, in about 32 years since this database started. So um, I'll repeat that. All reports of all deaths for all vaccines added together for 30 years are not as high as the number of deaths related to COVID vaccines that have been reported to this system in the last 20 months. And just to be clear, you know, this, these aren't necessarily causal things. They no. could be, this is just something that a medical professional or a non-medical professional saw was sufficiently in close proximity or they believe for some reason might have been related. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what you're supposed to do is use that database to figure out what the red flags are and then use all these other data, there's 20 other databases there that FDA and CDC have, many of which are active surveillance. You know, for example, that the, the VSD with 12 million Americans total medical record on it and the date of every vaccine, you know, use those databases to find out which of these red flags actually turn out to show a causal effect. This is not what they're doing. They're hiding that information from us. Or maybe they're doing it, but we don't know. <laughs> they're probably doing, I mean, yes, in the bowels of the FDA and CDC, these are easy, I mean, these are easy things to do searches on. You know, they have extensive, uh, you know, everything is electronic. Um, it, I mean, the DOD alone can do these studies. Uh, the states can do them in some cases. The states have their own Medicaid databases because that is a federal state program. Um, but so far, you know, the vast majority of the data has not been made public. So there is one state that has been looking at its data pretty carefully and, uh, you know, Surgeon General Joe Latipo of Florida has released uh, some you know, pretty shocking uh, data for, and now is has guidance not recommending these genetic vaccines for below 39, I believe, males, uh, because of the myo increased, substantially increased myocarditis risk. And deaths. And deaths. Oh, right, right, exactly, deaths. And here's the question I have. So, so there's this, but are, am I to understand that you're actually an, an advocate of kind of radical transparency of all of this data that should all be a, made available to the public so that people can kind of sift through it or what? Well, what do you mean by radical transparency? I mean, these are not classified documents. Um, what normally happens in medical research is that you anonymize data. You don't have patients' um, names, addresses, towns. You don't uh, provide data that can be identified with individual people. But public health is based on databases of health records. And all, uh, you know, I think that should happen is that the databases that the taxpayers are already paying for 
I mean, these federal agencies are paying to access this data, and they have loads of scientists who are being paid salaries to analyze the data, and it's not classified. It should all be in the public domain. So then, you know, basically, amateurs could try their hand and, and professionals at analyzing it much like, you know, the Surgeon General in Florida did. Exactly. That is, that is what is supposed to be done with data that is published in papers in the medical literature. The scientists who do these studies are supposed to make their databases available to other scientists to independently verify that their conclusions are correct. And why should the federal agencies do anything less? So how far away are we from that? Well, we're very far away because um, when people like myself and many others who are much more adept at studying these data um, look into it, we find that the CDC have changed definitions. They have um, made many adjustments to data and made it impossible for anyone to follow what they're doing. So, so I've worked on two studies where we've requested data from uh, CDC scientists. They won't share it. Um, we've asked them what their methodology was. They won't share it. Um, and I have studied how the definitions of, of a case of COVID have changed, how uh, the definition of what a positive PCR test is, you know, has varied from time to time. For instance, here's another good one. On May 1st of 2021, CDC said, okay, we don't want the states to report breakthrough COVID cases anymore unless the patient dies or is hospitalized and had a positive COVID test with a cycle threshold of 28 or below. So to be a breakthrough case, you needed a much, much higher titer of COVID virus in you than to be um, called a case where you could have a cycle threshold of 40 or in some cases 45, which are not normally considered to be accurate numbers for, for diagnosing and, any and infection. Just for the benefit of our, our viewers, the more cycle thresholds there are, the more likely you're to see a positive right. response. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so cycle thresholds even above 35 to 37, Tony Fauci said for COVID um, in an interview um, with Vince Racaniello of Columbia, Tony Fauci said, you can't believe those cycle thresholds. And yet the CDC's instructed laboratories to use cycle thresholds of 40 to 45. So the, that's, that's why I say you cannot rely on data. CDC provides us independent scientists or improved federal agencies need to start looking at raw data again and figuring out what they really show. Presumably you've got a lot of FOIA requests out. Uh, yes, so I'm working with Children's Health Defense, and um, we have been sending FOIA, a lot of FOIAs. Recently, I've also started working with another organization um, sending FOIAs. And Aaron Siri has probably had the best luck sending FOIAs because once a vaccine or drug is fully licensed by FDA, all the data, the data package that was used in the licensure process is supposed to be made public. And um, as you know, FDA tried to stop the data on the Pfizer vaccine from being public for first 55 years and then 75 years, and he won that court case. And so now that data is being made available to the public, and we need more of that. What do you make of this new California law that was just signed, in, signed into law by the governor? Explain it to me. So a new law was passed, rapidly passed, by both houses of the California legislature and signed into law by Gavin Newsom and goes into effect, I think, next month or this month. And it criminalizes doctors who say anything about COVID to their patients that is outside of consensus. Now, of course, a law doesn't know what consensus is, but everybody really knows what it is. It means you're not allowed to say anything outside the government narrative on COVID in California if you're a medical professional because you can lose your license. Um, that means you can't criticize the vaccines. You can't have the discussion I just had about databases being hidden. Um, 
and you cannot recommend drugs for COVID if the government is not recommending them. This uh, also means that you can't actually tell your patients the truth. You cannot tell a patient what is in the label of a drug or what isn't in a label. For example, if the government wants me to give somebody monoclonal antibodies, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to tell the patient there's a black box warning on the label and um, that monoclonal antibodies, if given to a hospitalized patient, can cause a worsening of their COVID condition, according to the label. But this California law would shut me up. I have to just go with the narrative. So um, it means doctors are being told they can't practice medicine, but particularly that they cannot provide informed consent to their patients. Isn't informed consent sort of a foundational uh principle of medicine? We thought it was. Even the law under which emergency use authorization products are authorized requires that you tell patients the risks and benefits of the EUA product. But this California law is saying you can't do that. So the California law thinks it's going to supersede federal law. So what do you expect is going to happen? Um, doctors in California are already talking about leaving the state. I mean, they've been told they can't practice medicine. They're supposed to turn into computers. And what I've said is that you, the reason you need a doctor is to assess your own individual risks and benefits and determine the best treatment for you in consultation with the patient, with a lot balancing many things. If everybody is going to be told the same thing and be given the same drug, you don't need a doctor, you just need a computer. Spit your you know, lab test into the computer and it'll uh, release a prescription. If all you're good for is to give patients the government narrative, there's, there's not gonna be any practice of medicine anymore. So say goodbye. And um, I think maybe some of them are waking up to that. Any final thoughts? It's a very dangerous time. The patients should be even more upset than the doctors. The life expectancy in the United States has crashed. It's gone down three years in the first two years of the pandemic. A Cuban now lives three years longer on average than an American. This is what's happened to the practice of medicine in the United States. And doctors have to stand up, but there's only a million doctors. There's 334 million people in the United States, and they have to say no more. Well, Dr. Merrill Nass, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for giving me a chance to say what matters to me. Thank you all for joining Dr. Merrill Nass and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.